0: This past weekend, Brazil's President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva visited the vast Yanomami indigenous territory on the country's northern border, bearing witness to what some have called a humanitarian catastrophe, and others have called genocide. Malnutrition and disease have brought some Yanomami communities to the brink of extinction, and shocking images from inside the villages have alerted the world to the gravity of what's happening in the Brazilian Amazon. The images show emaciated children, adults and elderly people with limbs as thin as tree branches, faces drawn haggard and bellies distended. The government has declared a public health emergency in the Yanomami indigenous territory and is sending supplies and personnel to the region. According to Brazil's Indigenous Health Secretary, more than a thousand Yanomami have been evacuated from their villages to receive critical health care. This week, what's happening in the Yanomami territory and the broader indigenous issues in Brazil. My name is Gustavo Ribeiro, editor-in-chief of The Brazilian Report, and this is Explaining Brazil. Last Friday, Amazon journalism platform Sumauma published shocking findings about the health emergency in the Yanomam indigenous territory. And to find out more about what is happening in the Brazilian Amazon, we got in touch with Sumauma founder and The Guardian's global environment editor, Jonathan Watts. Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us. Could you start us off by giving our listeners a quick primer on who the Yanomami are and where their land is?
1: The Yanomami indigenous group uh, live in the biggest demarc- demarcated area in Brazil. It's located um, in the north of the country and crosses over the border with Venezuela. Uh, this is some of the most remote and beautiful uh, forest, Amazon forest territory. Uh, and it encompasses an area that's uh, would be the size of a, a, a quite a substantial country uh, the population itself is not enormous there are about 30,000 um, yanomami people uh, and the term yanomami actually encompasses um, a number of different subgroups who all speak different languages i believe there are six different yanomami languages and the differences are not just differences of uh, accent. They're differences such as the equivalent to the difference between French and English, for example. So it's a very, very important indigenous culture um, and a very important globally uh, environmental area uh, because they protect some of the, the the most pristine rainforest in the world. They live um, in tandem with the, the rainforest. And as a result, you know, they, they are doing the service for the whole world in the way they manage the forest based on uh, thousands of years of experience of living with the forest and living as part of the forest. So
0: Sumauma published this story on Friday called, quote, We Can't Even Count the Bodies. Explain to us, if you will, what this story refers to and what has happened in the Yanomami indigenous territory
1: since then? So last week we published uh, a story called We're Not Even Able to Count the Bodies, which was the first um, really quantitative assessment of just how bad the humanitarian crisis in Yanomami, Yanomami territory is. I think over recent weeks and months, Photos have started to emerge on NGO websites and and some Brazilian and even international media that have shown clearly malnourished people. Uh, But the extent of the crisis wasn't really known until one of my colleagues, uh, Talita Bedinelli, uh, working with uh, 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 our co-founder Eliane Brum and a local um, anthropologist, Ana Maria Machado, together they they spent many weeks, um, in fact, I think more than more than, even a couple of months, trying to find out just how serious this was. So they submitted a Freedom of Information request to the Health Ministry of Brazil. Um, for weeks this was ignored, especially towards the end of the Bolsonaro administration. And then the new government of, uh, led by Lula came in and they um, obviously <laughs> had their hands full taking power, uh, especially with the, the, the political tensions that we've seen in Brazil in recent weeks. So they uh, eventually came out with the data last Thursday um, and we published uh, hours later. And what the data showed was that. 570 uh, children, Yanomami children, under the age of five have died of preventable causes in the last four years. So that's the four years of uh, Jair Bolsonaro's administration. Um, So think 570 out of a population of around 30,000 people. That is a lot, a very high proportion. What the statistics also showed was that this was an increase of 29% uh, compared to the previous four years. So, uh, you know, almost an increase by almost a third. And the suggestion that is reinforced by health workers, by anthropologists, by the Yanomami themselves, is that in the past four years, there's been a kind of malign neglect uh, of the Yanomami's health situation and even worse, an encouragement. Uh, of an invasion by illegal gold miners who brought with them um, disease, there's a huge problem of malaria, Um, crime because many um, narco-trafficking groups are involved in illegal gold mining, and now malnutrition because so many people have been affected by disease and crime that there isn't enough people to go out into the fields and produce food or to go into the forest and hunt. So it's really serious. These 570 children are dying from things like diarrhea and, and intestinal worms and pneumonia, things that really, really, um, in normal situations, should be easy to fix with, with, some, with some food, with some basic medicines, with some treatment. But the doctors, many doctors have left the area because they've been threatened and intimidated and just too dangerous for them. So it's it's coming together with different crises and the victims are the Yanomami and especially the Yanomami children.
0: One of the most disturbing aspects of these pieces of information coming out of the Yanomami territory are shocking photographs that have been published around the world. Now, for some Yanomami communities, the idea of photos and the use of their image is a very delicate matter. So where did these pictures come from? Why is it important that they be spread around the world?
1: Well, this is, this is crucial um, because it shows the severity of the situation. Um, that Yanomami leaders have been willing to give permission for these pictures to be circulated. Because it really does as you as you were saying it, it goes against um, basic cultural instincts which are that if you show a person of someone who's sick um it's it's a kind of an affront to that person individually, but there's also a suggestion that it it's somehow weakens them it's um it it, it it's it makes the situation worse uh so Sumo had these pictures for more than a month and we're discussing uh, how to use them. And uh, we wanted to make sure that we weren't making a bad situation worse by just going out and publishing. So there was a lot of consultation with anthropologists, with Yanomami leaders. And eventually it was uh, agreed uh, by all involved that it's okay to produce the pictures because it's really important for the outside world to know what's going on. Uh, but at the same time to find a way to protect the identities of those who appear in the pictures. So you can see the pictures, and the pictures clearly show uh, just the levels of malnutrition, the sort of stick-like arms, the distended bellies, the emaciated uh, chests. Um, But the faces are are blurred out just so that the the identities are, are protected. So a lot of care went into finding a way to to present these pictures in a in a responsible way but they have made an impact i think that you know we've we've seen these reports now circulated um in europe in north america um even even in uh, china so it's it hopefully help will follow and we're already seeing the brazilian government step up its its efforts so i think it it was already very concerned about this sonia the the country's first ever indigenous minister said that the situation is her priority uh, the new president lula has has uh, declared a humanitarian crisis and he flew to Rama to try to find out more about the situation so there is more attention and hopefully there will be more medical assistance and more effort to clear out the illegal miners although that is a much more difficult issue just to- Pick up on
0: something you touched on there. One of the really interesting changes is that a lot of the complaints and outrage is now coming from the federal government. You mentioned Lula's visit to the Yanomami territory, and we have heard from the justice minister Flavio Ginu talking about a quote mega operation against illegal gold mining. Do you think there's a chance to make a real difference here? Or has the emergency become just too serious? Is there a way back for these communities?
1: There absolutely is a way back, and there is a lot that can be done. The last four years have been a a situation of of uh, malign neglect, uh, as, as I called it before, and I, I think. Instead, if you have benign care, which is what this current government had promised, the situation will improve. Um, and this new government couldn't be more different than the last one. The previous head of FUNAI, which is the Brazilian government's uh, agency for indigenous affairs, uh, the previous head was a former military guy. He was a white guy. He had very little experience of in indigenous matters but he was put in charge just because it was a political appointment. Uh, the new head of Indigenous Affairs uh, is, is an Indigenous woman, uh, Joenia uh, Wapichana. And she, she has every interest to do something about this. She's the first Indigenous woman, in fact, the first Indigenous person to be put in charge of Indigenous Affairs. Imagine what a historic moment this is after... F- 500 years of having Europeans come in to the country and sort of take control. This is the first time indigenous groups have been allowed to look after their own affairs in the central government. There's also the first indigenous minister, Sonia Guajajara. So you have a a, a historical shift is underway. Um, So I think there is the the leadership is there. um, The commitment is there. The resources are not yet there. I think that is the key, that the, the agencies that will need to play a big role in uh, removing illegal miners uh, will need more funding. Uh, they'll need helicopters. They'll need the backing of the military. That could happen quite quickly if the military line up on the right side, which is not guaranteed, but probable. Uh, so I think we will see um, some major operations um, and and not – in the next few weeks or months, I would think. Uh, I think there'll be a high profile uh, clearance operation inside Yanomami territory of illegal miners. Uh, it will involve uh, at least logistical support from the military, probably speedboats or helicopters, possibly even planes. Uh, it will involve um, armed federal police, most likely, maybe armed officials from IBAMA, which is the Environmental Protection Agency, and you'll see almost a Hollywood-like operation of huge numbers of um, state personnel moving in, um, rounding up any stragglers who, who are there um, amongst the illegal miners, and then burning the equipment. It's going to be a big uh, display to show others you, know, you cannot get away with this anymore. That said, um, it's altogether another question about whether this will solve the problem because it's such a huge problem. This is not a few hundred people. It's many, many thousands of illegal gold miners. And whereas in the past, they might have been, you know, lonely prospectors, with a, with a you know, with a pan on their back. Uh, these days, it's it's gangs. Um, including some of the biggest narco-trafficking gangs in South America who are heavily armed, who have a lot of very expensive, sophisticated equipment, bulldozers, dredgers, and the likes. So they're not going to just leave all that without a bit of a fight, I think. Uh, So there's a huge uh, security challenge ahead. There's also a huge social challenge ahead because once you've uh, taken these many thousands of illegal gold miners out of indigenous land, if you succeed in doing so, um, really need to provide some other way for them to make a living. Otherwise, it's just going to happen all over again. So this is at the center of many problems facing the new government. But it's also very exciting because there is a willingness to do something. And I think a lot of support from the outside world. uh, And I hope the outside world will step up with financial support Uh, both for operations like this and more broadly uh, for Amazon preservation.
0: Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us and we will link to Sumauma's Yanomami reporting in our show notes, both in English and Portuguese. Sumauma is a journalism platform based in Altamira, in the heart of the Brazilian Amazon. Their manifesto describes their work as quote, forest first, and promises to, quote, stand with the forest peoples on the front lines of the war being waged against nature. To find out more, check out sumauma.com. After the break, the wider indigenous issues under the newly inaugurated Lula government. We'll be right back. I'd like to remind you that the Brazilian report is funded by subscriptions and support from loyal readers. Besides subscribing to our website and getting exclusive daily content on Brazil and Latin America, you can also treat our staff to one to five cups of coffee a month. And in return, you will get exclusive benefits such as special newsletters, behind the scenes content, as well as a shout out here on our podcast. And today... I want to thank our Buy Me a Coffee members John Thomas III, Louis Haynes, Erwin Menes, Orlando Black, Steve Knapp, Aaron Berger, James Coney, Cars Vreswick, Alasdair Townsend, Peter Abrahamson, Michael Fryer, Miller Renascido, Jim Awofadeju, David Dixon, Felipe Saito, José Rose Stankovic, Gabriela Graf Innes. Emerging Market Muser, Yarden Iftar, Tonica Thompson, Anderson da Silva, Kat Kramer, Fra, Peter Suffering, Anna Lund, and someone who chose to remain anonymous. If you also believe in the importance of independent journalism, and if you want to hear your name on this podcast, head over to buymeacoffee.com slash Report and subscribe to one of the membership tiers. If you cannot make a monthly commitment, you can still tip us a cup of coffee every now and then just to give that energy boost we need to cover a country as complex as Brazil and a region as complex as Latin America. We appreciate all your support. Click on buymeacoffee.com slash Report to find out more. You're Marshall, Deputy Editor of the Brazilian Report and our go-to guy for environmental and indigenous stories. Welcome back to the show.
2: Hi, Gustavo.
0: So, we, we have covered indigenous issues extensively on the Brazilian Report. They think it might be useful to back up a little bit and give us an overview of the indigenous situation in Brazil for listeners who might be used to how things work in the U.S. or Canada, for example.
2: Sure. Well, anthropologists believe that in the year 1500, when the Portuguese anchored off what is now Brazil, they believed that then there were as many as 5 million indigenous people living across the country's vast coastline, uh, divided into more than a thousand different ethnicities. And today, the most recent census data, which is from 2010, it puts the total indigenous population at just under 900,000, and just over half of them living in rural areas, and most of them in the Amazon.
0: And from that estimated 1,000 plus ethnicities, uh, do we have a ballpark or of how many are there now?
2: Well, there are just over 250 recognized indigenous ethnicities today. And I mean, some of these are communities that are as small as 100 people or less. And, you know, at the same time, there's also some ethnicities with populations that are in the tens of thousands. So there's lots of variety.
0: And where do these communities live? Because I think it's important for us to... Uh, go a little bit into the weeds because listeners in the U.S. will be familiar with Native American reservations, which have their own sovereignty and sometimes even their own laws. There's a bit of a blurred line between tribal and private ownership, and there are often commercial establishments like casinos, but in Brazil, things are very different, right?
2: Yeah, very much so. Um, And just to see the full context, we need to kind of take a further step back uh, because in Brazil's first Republican constitution in 1891, there was no mention whatsoever of indigenous people. And then we only saw baby steps towards indigenous protection in 1910, uh, which is when they created the the Indian Protection Service, which is now the Brazilian Indigenous Foundation or FUNAI. And this was because there was massacres of indigenous communities. it It was commonplace at the time. And this early version of Funai helped prevent some of these atrocities and kind of guaranteed the rights of certain groups to their own territory. And then the 1934 constitution, that recognised the rights of indigenous people to occupy their traditional lands. And so activists obviously saw that as progress. But then came the military dictatorship uh, and the so-called Indian statute, um, which stated, and this was decreed in the mid-70s, it stated that indigenous people should be protected but that they should also be, quote, progressively and harmoniously integrated, end quote, into, you know, mainstream Brazilian society.
0: Then we had the return to democracy and the 1988 constitution, right? I mean, that had a whole chapter dedicated exclusively to indigenous rights.
2: Yeah, and there's some key things in there that kind of define how indigenous protection works today in Brazil. Um, First of all, that constitution called for the demarcation of all indigenous lands and established that indigenous peoples have the, quote, exclusive right to exploit the wealth of their lands, rivers, and lakes, and also made it the responsibility of Congress to authorize the exploration of any of these resources by anyone who isn't indigenous. And also it would require the consent of indigenous communities.
0: Right. So this was one of Jair Bolsonaro's key talking points. He wanted to open up indigenous lands to private interests, saying that traditional people could not be poor living on such rich land. He even said that uh, the Amazon had the the full uh, periodic table of elements on the within the ground. And if we compare this to the U.S., where there is a desire or at least a willingness among Brazil's indigenous people to financially exploit their lands.
2: Well, I mean, in general, no, but it's worth pointing out that, you know, Indigenous people are are people like anyone else. You know, if they're struggling to provide for themselves, their families and the people around them, they'll do what they can to address that. And that's one of the big problems with these private interests that are encroaching on Indigenous lands because mining, logging, deforestation, you know, these all provide easy and profitable work. So, you know, it's really quite tempting.
0: And in his campaign, Bolsonaro promised that he would not allow one centimeter of indigenous land to be demarcated. And that was a promise he really kept.
2: Yeah, exactly. I remember last year that we, on the Brazilian Report, we did a story about a bloody conflict between an indigenous community in southern Bahia and local agribusiness interests. And so the community in question for that story, they had been waiting for over a decade for their land to be recognized and ratified by the government. And there are about 700 other indigenous territories around the country in the same situation.
0: Now, there's one piece of data that I think it's interesting, and we have reported on that in April of last year. So between 2007 and 2010, we had 2200 land conflicts in Brazil. And then between 2019 and early 2022, so an even shorter span, we had over 4,000, so almost double. Uh, that shows a little bit the, the consequences of enabling uh, land grabbers and wildcat miners. And for these communities, in these indigenous communities, I guess the hope is that now there we're be some progress on that front, right? Because Lula came in as president promising something completely different from what Bolsonaro did for four years. Brazil now has an indigenous ministry. uh, And like Jonathan Watts said earlier, uh, it now has an indigenous person in charge of indigenous affairs for the first time. Is that more optics or should we expect meaningful change to come?
2: Well, I think in the case of the Yanomami situation, the health and indigenous people's ministries, they've been planning since the transition to declare a public health emergency in the Yanomami territory. And then, the you know, the actual declaration happened to coincide with Lola's visit to the region, you know, along with several other cabinet ministers like, I guess cynics could say that, you know, maybe they could have done it on January the 1st when they took office, but they waited for the the photo up with Lula. <laughs> but then, I mean, we only have to look at the Bolsonaro government because in his four years as president, one of his most famous visits to northern Brazil involved spending about $20,000 on lunch and then hanging out with illegal gold miners and in protected indigenous lands. So, I mean, I think we can agree that one approach is much more effective than the other.
0: Yes, I mean, I think, we can assume that the Lula government will be better for indigenous affairs than Bolsonaro's government, but that's a really low bar to clear, right? Yuan, <laughs> thanks for joining us. And I know you will keep monitoring how real progress is being done or not done during this incoming administration. Thank you very much.
2: Thanks, Gustavo. Yeah, it's gonna be an interesting four years, I think, for us covering Indigenous and environmental stories.
0: And if you like Explaining Brazil, please give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It takes only a second and it will help us reach a broader audience. Or better yet, sign up for The Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We have a subscription-based business model and your memberships fuel our journalism and keep us going and growing. Thanks to our subscribers, we have been able to cover Brazil and Latin America extensively and we have won or been shortlisted for multiple international journalism awards. In order to keep doing that work, we need your support. Go to brazilian.com slash subscribe. I'm Gustavo Ribeiro. Thanks for listening and Explaining Brazil will be back next week.